This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 23rd, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. Franklin Roosevelt's views on the proper role of government animated his approach to war, and it resulted in self-serving policies meant to aggrandize his office and supplant civil society. That's the argument from the book FDR Goes to War by Burton and Anita Folsom. Burton Folsom spoke at the Cato Institute about their book last week. Franklin Roosevelt was very anxious for an active role of government in the American economy. Of course, World War II provides that in a big way. Anita's gone into some of those details. But Roosevelt wanted it that way after the war, too. That's the important thing. So you have, during the war, Franklin Roosevelt created the National uh, Resources Planning Board. They were supposed to take ideas for after the war to run the American economy. Roosevelt picked this up, and in his State of the Union speech in 1944, he talked about the Economic Bill of Rights. The Economic Bill of Rights, and I quote from parts of it, include the right to a useful and remunerative job. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to a good education. The right to adequate medical care. These become new rights, which Roosevelt described as the new economic bill of rights. Sometimes he called it the second bill of rights. And they roll off the tongue so nicely, don't they? A right to a decent home. Don't we all want decent homes? The right to a good education. The right to a useful and remunerative job. Roosevelt issued these, and these become the plan for after World War II. When the war is over, then these rights can be given forth. Now, if you think about it, if Anita has a right to a useful and remunerative job, then someone here has an obligation to provide that job. If I have a right to a decent home, taxpayers have an obligation to provide that home. If David has a right to adequate medical care, then there are hospitals, or through federal funding of some kind, those hospitals, those physicians, are obligated to supply that medical care. How different this is from the first Bill of Rights. The right to free speech does not impose obligations on you to even listen to the speech, least of all accept it or pay for it. The right to freedom of religion, we're in a church here, the right of freedom of religion does not obligate anyone to go to a certain church. It just provides the opportunity for someone to practice freedom of religion. The first Bill of Rights by the Founders our rights, the second Bill of Rights, impose obligations and involve the government in a big way. Now, what we see in the war is a huge tax structure being set up, which Roosevelt will want to use after the war and will be used after the war to fund more federal programs. In 1932, the year that Franklin Roosevelt was elected president, the income tax maximum that anybody had to pay was 25%. That's the most anybody had to pay. Top incomes. Most Americans did not pay income tax at all. Of course, in some ways, there's a problem with that. 
But we only had about 5% of Americans paying any income tax as late as uh, right before the war in 1940. By the end of the war, two-thirds of American families were paying the federal income tax. And it started at 24%. The exemption was only $500. If you made over $500, you started paying at 24%. That then increased in a progressive way up to a maximum of 94% on all income over $200,000. That means that if you earn $300,000 on your third $100,000, you keep $6,000, you give to the government $94,000. A lot of people thought, hey, that might stifle entrepreneurship. Roosevelt believed it's essential providing decent homes, good educations, adequate medical care. This will be the basis of the funding of those kinds of actions. So what we see is a dramatic increase in the taxpayer base and in tax revenue. We see withholding introduced for the first time. Withholding, we have a chapter on that that will be introduced that will take money directly out of paycheck so the government can use it right away rather than having to wait for a year. What we see is a defense of Franklin Roosevelt by many people. I'd like to read from a Kentucky senator, Senator Happy Chandler. Democratic senator from Kentucky, the state where David was born, where Anita was born. But neither of them agrees with Happy Chandler, at least on this point. He said this, quote, All of us owe the government. We owe it for everything we have. And that is the basis of obligation. And the government can take everything we have if it needs it. The government can assert its right to have all the taxes it needs for any purpose, either now or at any time in the future. The Chandler view expressed on the Senate floor, we pulled this out of the congressional record, and many other quotations like this, are the defense of the idea of government becoming the, the, the main source not only of, of for the economy, for providing jobs, for providing health care, and the tax revenue then going into the government so that the, the government programs can provide those kinds of jobs, can provide decent homes, can provide good educations. When we got to the end of the war, Roosevelt died, Harry Truman comes in. Harry Truman essentially agrees with Roosevelt on many of these issues. They're different kinds of people, two very different presidents. But on these issues, Truman is ready to go along with a lot of this. Truman comes in. The economic planners are wanting to institute this, but they think the war is going to go on until 1946. Germany, of course, surrenders in 45. It appears that it will go on for a long time. Truman did not know about the atomic bomb when he became president. That's one of the shocks. Roosevelt had never informed him that it was being developed. In fact, one of the odd things is, the day that Truman became president, he did not know we had an atomic bomb. But Stalin did. One of the ironies of history, the Russians knew we had it. The president of the United States did not. Happily, Secretary of War Stimson told that to Truman, early in his presidency, so now he knew 
And when he made the decision to use it on Japan in August, Congress is out of session. It takes most of America by surprise. August 6th, an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. August 9th, on Nagasaki. Congress is out of session, and the war is over. The planners had not had a chance to come in with their programs. Immediately, Truman wants to get them back into session. But by this time, some of the congressmen were saying, you know what, this 94% tax I don't think is going to get America back on track. The Keynesians completely believed it. Listen, here's, here's uh, Truman's Secretary of Treasury. It gives you an idea where the, the Americans were who favored this kind of intervention. Of course, uh, Lord Maynard Keynes had come out with his ideas that you need public works, stimulate aggregate demand, lots of government intervention, and you will eliminate unemployment through that. And so what Secretary of, Vin uh, Secretary of Treasury Vincent, another Kentuckian, by the way, Fred Vincent, uh, Truman's Secretary of Treasury, says, quote, he says it's right after the war. The Japanese have surrendered, and he wants massive government intervention. And he says, history shows us that business, labor, agriculture cannot in themselves assure the maintenance of high levels of production and employment. In other words, markets don't work. The government must assume responsibility and take measures broad enough to meet the issues. Reporter I.F. Stone completely agrees, as do many other reporters. Stone says, quote, New agencies, new men, new ideas, new directions are necessary and quickly if we are not to suffer a relapse into chronic mass unemployment. That, the war's transfusions are no longer available to an alien capitalism. This alien capitalism no longer has the war's transfusion. 12 million soldiers are coming home. Immediately, we've got to have these government programs for them. They predicted without massive government programs, new WPAs, new programs to build roads, new programs to train people, Without these programs, in effect, Roosevelt wanted, or excuse me, Truman, Roosevelt also wanted to build new, like the Tennessee Valley Authority for the Tennessee Valley, uh, others all around the country, other types of uh, public works programs, other types of use of dams, building of public works, uh, very much in Truman's mind. Unless these things happen, they predicted... Listen, we've got 12 million veterans coming home. Senator Kilgore of West Virginia said, I predict 18 million unemployed. It's going to be worse than the Great Depression. It's going to be worse than the 25% we had when Roosevelt came into office. Time magazine. Others estimated, no, maybe just 10 or 12 million unemployed. That still is going to put it about 20%. Predictions of very high unemployment. What do we get? Two senators, one Republican, one Democrat, say no. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Walter George of Georgia, said this. He supported a Revenue Act of 1945, which cut tax rates. I'll get into that in a minute. But he said this. If this Revenue Act has the effect which it is hoped it will have, it will so stimulate the expansion of business as to bring in a greater total revenue and create more jobs at the same time. In other words, I think we can get more revenue into the government, and I think we can get more jobs created if we cut the tax rates and allow businesses to expand. It was a model completely different from the Roosevelt model in the Economic Bill of Rights. And uh, he was, we had the Republicans agreeing. Senator Albert Hawks, Republican of New Jersey, said this. 
The repeal of the excess profits tax, in my opinion, may raise more revenue for the United States than would be raised if it were retained, and it was at 90%. We had a 90% corporate tax. And Hawks is saying, if you'll cut that tax below 90%, I think we can actually not only create more jobs because you stimulate business, but you will actually grow the economy and get more revenue at the same time. And uh, Hawks added this statement, Senator Hawks, you cannot get a golden egg out of a dead goose. Hawks led enough Republicans and Senator George led enough Democrats to pass the Revenue Act of 1945. And the Revenue Act of 1945 cut the corporate tax from 90% to 38%. Imagine that. 90% to 38%. It cut the personal income tax. Plus, it promised more cuts later. So this is the first one. This is all we can get through now. More are coming later. We cut what was known as the capital stock tax. You had to pay a tax on every share of stock you owned. We eliminated that. Eliminated regulations, slashed federal spending dramatically, which, of course, you can do. We no longer were going to need the tanks, planes, and ammunition. So enormous cutting of federal expense. The end result of this was a massive economic expansion. Businessmen said, finally, we've been under these heavy taxes for 13 years, and even more into the Hoover administration was not too good either. We've had a Great Depression for 15 years. Now the tax rates are cut. It's time to expand. If you look at that post-war economy, so much that we take for granted today. I mean, you got fast food, you know, McDonald's uh, gets going. You get the... the uh, uh, Holiday Inn, uh, you get television, Xerox, copy machines, all of these kinds of entrepreneurs and many more come to the fore after World War II. And we see a tremendous growth. One of the most exciting statistics here is this. We had 39 million people employed in civilian employment, non-military. That goes up to 55 million. The stock market increased by 20% in 1946. Private gross national product increased 30% for the first and only time it had done that in U.S. history. And furthermore, the experts were estimating, well, I think we will get $31 million into the federal treasury in 46, maybe 47. We got 43, excuse me, 31 billion. We had 43 billion. We increased that by more than 25% because the economy had expanded so much more than anybody anticipated. The end result is that we have 3.9% unemployment in 1946, 3.9% unemployment in 1947. The United States has this burgeoning growth rate, and when Europe, who is trying the other means, the Keynesian means to get back on their feet, when they're failing, the United States is able to send tons and tons of food over to feed Europeans who at different points in the post-war period were dying at the rate of one per second. Those deaths were curtailed by free food that the United States sent over after the war. We sent that food, the economy recovered, and we cut the federal deficit during 1946 and 1947, slightly, but we did cut it, in part because the revenue so much exceeded uh, expectations. So what I'm saying is this. 
We have a lot during World War II that gives us lessons for today, what works, what doesn't work in an expanding economy, the taxes that we've come to expect today, the Economic Bill of Rights, the right to education, which we've seen, for example, with the student loan program and Obama, President Obama. We've seen changes with the housing right to a decent home, which goes with urban renewal first. Then you go to the Community Reinvestment Act in the 1970s, which promises very low interest rates to poor people so that they can have homes, which accelerates the mortgage crisis, which becomes unhinged in the last in five years. The right to medical care we see with President Obama and Obamacare. So I'm simply saying this, the politics of today heavily shaped by what we saw happen in World War II. But what we saw happen in World War II, if we study it more carefully, is that we got out of the Great Depression by freeing up the economy and cutting tax rates, not by following the prescription to increase and perpetuate the high economic growth that we experienced during World War II. Thank you. Burton Folsom, along with Anita Folsom, is author of FDR Goes to War. You can watch or listen to the full event for the book at our website, cato.org.